I'm Abigail Adam, and welcome to Voices from the Northwest Corner, presented by the Housatonic Heritage Oral History Center at Berkshire Community College. Today we are bringing you to the Oral History Festival at Housatonic Valley Regional High School. The 1950s are well known by many historians and people of the decade for the rise of the suburbs, industrial farming, and pesticide usage as the Green Revolution took hold of the agriculture industry. This drastic societal shift affected the average American's way of life as well. At this time, the United States continued through the golden age of Hollywood, new music such as rock and roll became popular, and the consumerist lifestyle took America by storm. Today, we'll give you an inside look at how these factors impacted the lives of residents of Northwest Connecticut's six-town Region 1 school district during this particular decade. We interviewed these individuals live at the 2017 Housatonic Valley Regional High School Oral History Festival. Today, the Future Farmers of America program at Housatonic Valley Regional High School is widely seen by students, parents, teachers, and local residents alike as the jewel of the school. Housatonic agriculture students and teams alike have participated in over 20 different competitions and have even placed as high as the gold level at national competitions. Frank Parati and John F. Parati have lived in this part of Connecticut since the 1930s and 1940s. They remember what sort of vocational agriculture programs were available at the high school when they attended. They offered here what they call a graduating class, it was an industrial arts class. That was my certificate of graduation. And it was down where the VOAG is now, but it was kind of like the VOAG course. Mr. Wood was the ag ed teacher. I was in the ag ed program, and he left a very favorable impression on me. He, he instilled in me as a sophomore the importance of camaraderie, the importance of teamwork, um, and as a result of that, it, at an early age, I learned to pay attention to my studies. Um, I was president of the Future Farmers of America as a junior which at the time was unheard of. Nobody was made president until they were a senior as a rule. But I learned early on the importance of accountability, teamwork, respect for your elders, those sorts of things. Today, farms both big and small dot the landscape and surround the different towns in Region 1. In the 1950s, however, the region as a whole had an even greater agricultural focus. Here, Ed Kirby and John F. Parati have fond memories of working on a farm in the 1950s. Uh, I grew up on a farm, farm estate it was, but there was a farm on it, so uh, we got up around 5 in the morning and did the milking. And uh, school didn't start until 9 in those days, in the 40s, uh, because there were so many people involved in farming, you had to allow people time enough to get to school. I was uh, raised on a dairy farm, so I was up early. Usually I, I worked out in the barn before I came to school. I was usually up around 4.30, 5 o'clock, and I had an hour worth of work out in the barn, uh, taking care of the animals, milking cows, whatever family had me do. You know, I was a low person on the totem pole, so. <laughs> but it was a good experience because I learned a lot about animals early on in life. I learned a lot about responsibility, accountability, uh, teamwork, uh, and so it was a very uh, a rich atmosphere, but uh, it made for a long day, and usually around 9 o'clock or so at, at night I was tuckered out. Didn't have any trouble sleeping. Mary Kirby, the wife of Ed Kirby, 
also had a family farm. It was in the hills of Kent. It was up, up, it was up, up on the mountain. But we would go up and yeah, we could, it was sort of, we said we helped with the haying. <laughs> I think you were probably more of a hindrance, but it was fun and it kept us outdoors and active. And, um, you know, my uncles allowed us to um, drive the tractor to pull a you know, hay wagon or something until it got to the precarious stage. And then we'd probably have to defer to a grown up. But, you know, that kind of thing. With berry picking and went for a walk. It was fun. Yeah. It was a it was a nice a nice time. It was fun with the animals too. We always you know, would, the animals would be out in the fields and we'd have to go for a walk to get them in from the fields to get into their stanchions in the farm buildings and it was sort of one of those special events of childhood. With Sinclair, says farming was one of the very first jobs he had as a kid. I worked with a, a farmer named Bob Free, and he was on the corner of Sand Road and uh, Page Road that went that way, and right there at the corner where that horse farm is now. And I worked for him maybe for two summers, and it was a room and board kind of thing. Um, even though I only lived a bicycle wide away, uh, I lived in at the farm because I had to be up at, oh boy, four o'clock or something in the morning to do chores in the barn. On that farm, Wood Sinclair remembers taking care of cows. I clean up the barn, dress down the cows, and wash them. I think they were in the barn overnight for the morning milking. Uh, it was not hand milking, we'd strip the cows by hand. But there was the milking with the milking machine, and after that was done, it was back to the house. Even though machinery was used for milking, it certainly wasn't used for hay, as Wood Sinclair recalls. In the summertime, it was almost always hay, as I recall very definitely. And in those days, believe it or not, we'd gather hay by hand, a device that was pulled behind a flatbed truck and it would roll the hay up onto the base. My job was to distribute the hay around on the top of the truck so that we would have an even load. We'd drive that into the barn, the hay hook had come down, uh, get the hay off the truck, take it up, then I'd have to uh, uh, distribute the hay in the hay mow. Um, and that was, uh, that was the haying that I did but I remember that loose hay very distinctly. And then I also worked at the farm that was next door, and I can remember silage there. I can remember working with the chopping cord and the silage, and distributing the silage in the silo. Farming also heavily influenced what sort of food families across the region prepared during meals. Pauline Moore, Ed Kirby, Mary Kirby, and Ed Dorsett described the food that local farms cultivated during the decade usually had meat, potatoes, and a salad, and whatever vegetable was in season. Actually, growing up, my family had a small farm where they raised their own animals, so we did ha also have pork. <laughs> growing up on a farm, you eat a big breakfast, you know, bacon, eggs, and, uh, and you made sure you got that in before you headed for school. The, uh, Typical dinner was uh, at home was more of the meat and potatoes type of thing, and uh, uh, maybe uh, pork chops or uh, 
chicken because we raised raised chickens on the farm as well, and uh, usually potatoes, bees, beans, things that that have been grown right on the farm. So uh, we had plenty of healthy meals. My family also had a farm, so milk came from the farm, and uh, garden. We all had gardens. You say that you have an organic garden. You say it's beautiful because you can go out and take a piece of fruit or vegetable and just eat it without having to worry about washing. While agriculture was a strong focus of residents of the northwest corner during the 1950s, there was still plenty of time for other activities as well. One of the many popular forms of recreation was spending time outside. Bunny McGuire, Frank Parati, Pat McCara, and Ed Kirby recollect how they enjoyed spending time in the great outdoors. Lots of times the kids would come to the house and we'd go bicycle, along and bicycle rides to Great Barrington, Sharon, all over, yeah, and take a picnic lunch. And then if um, we got too tired, we'd call my father and say, can you come up with the truck? So that was another thing, bicycles, everyone hopped in the back of the truck. We had, we had Little League Baseball then, started. Uh, we had, uh, and we had a lot of pickup teams, you know. We, we kind of organized our sports. East Canaan would be going to Canaan to play ball. And back then we had, you know, in high school I had a car and when I got to be my junior year. So, you know, it was a great travel to go to Sharon to play against those. And, you know, in Cornwall and Kent. I had a lot of friends from Kent. But once you got licenses, it brought this group together. You know, the high school got us here, but now we could travel with them. A couple of us were kind of organizers of the neighborhood. Ron Bauer, who's also an interviewee here today, he was the big brother to everybody on our street. It was, a, it was a Church Street, Rose Street, and Bottle Street. And he always had the kids engaged. Ron always had the kids engaged. Right next to his house, there's a huge lot. He would ride down on his bike and say, come on, let's go, we're going to play baseball. And it didn't matter whether you were a boy or a girl, we all played baseball. One of the things that was big in the summertime was uh, dances in the covered bridge in West Cornwall. <laughs> They'd cut the traffic off for uh, four hours and uh, have a uh, square dance band in there. And uh, they were very well attended, drew a lot of people. They were a lot of fun. So we had fun. I mean, we, we weren't straight-laced or anything. <laughs> After school involvement in clubs, sports, and various other organizations was a popular form of recreation for students during the 1950s. Frank Parati and Peter Smith were big in the football. Yeah, I played football for four years. And our senior year, we went to 11-man football. We lost one football game in four years. Prior to that, it was six-man. And there was no six-man schools that were big enough to play us. You know, in my senior year, we had a fabulous 11-man football the first time ever. All before that, we had six-man. Then we went into my senior year into 11-man football. Unbelievable undefeated team. Oh, it's so big, so important, so great. Basketball was also a beloved sport, and cheering on the players was a young Bunny McGuire. I was a basketball cheerleader, and um, you couldn't be a, a cheerleader until you were sophomore. And sophomore I was junior varsity, and then the rest of the time I was varsity. But, as Wood Sinclair will tell you, athletics weren't the only game in town. I was involved in the debate club, and we had a public forum, as I remember. Uh, we had these marvelous debate contests, 
and with other schools. But I remember that as being a great deal of fun. I think I also remember as a freshman, I was in a play that was, I think, in my freshman or sophomore year, and I continued with the dramatics club pretty much um, through, through high school. I was never deeply involved in, in uh, athletics, although I did go out for track, and I remember very distinctly being asked by um, Ambler Travis, and he was the track coach. Uh, Ambler asked me if uh, I could finish the quarter mile. That's the way he put it to me. I was very impressed by the way he put that to me because I was not a runner. I was involved uh, in my senior year, heavily involved as editor-in-chief of the yearbook. Anyway, that was, a, that was a good experience for me. And that was another activity here at the high school, was uh, the chess club. We played chess all the time. That was a very social thing, it was uh, playing chess with my uh, uh, good friend Nick. Even Peter Smith, the avid football player, found exciting hobbies off of the field. The big thing for me were the Boy Scouts. Mm -hmm. And so I was big in Boy Scouts, I became an Eagle Scout. Um, I also, you know, went to Boy Scout camp as a camper and then as a counselor. So that was important in my life, the scouting program in Canaan. The different towns across the region were incredibly lively, with many different activities happening for local residents to partake in. Wood Sinclair and Ed Dorsett say a favorite pastime was checking out the silver screen. Movies, yes, so we go to movies, Canaan Movie Theater was very active. Uh, there was a movie theater in Lakeville, uh, which is where the pizza, was it Mises Pizza, the, up next to the Black Rabbit now, and uh, that was a movie theater. Those were the two places we generally went. We went to Johnny's in Canaan and hung out there. And Johnny's in Canaan was where Jim's garage is now. Movies. But, uh, but until I was 16, I probably only went to, I don't know, maybe two or three movies. Four movies, because I wouldn't walk to the movies. And so going to a movie was a big, big deal. Another big, big deal, says Ed Dorsett, was bowling. Right by that theater up in Canaan, there was a bowling alley. Mainly it was duck, duck bits, little bits. And, and so bowling would have been a big uh, entertainment. Pat McHare agrees. I would take a group of friends, and very often on a Saturday night, we would go up to the Cove in Great Barrington, and we would bowl, and then we would go, the friendlies used to be there then, and we would go get an ice cream after we bowl. North Canaan was an especially exciting spot. Frank Parati and Bunny McGuire remember the town as a bustling hub for shopping. North Canaan was a bubbling place because the trains were active through there. North Canaan had two supermarkets, believe it not supermarkets, two, gro two large grocery stores. Yeah. They had three barber shops, uh, four bars, <laughs> uh, three doctors <laughs> in town, you, like you know, three doctors in town. And that was a real bubbling hub. And then we had Joe's Fresh Shop. It was a little shop. When you went in there, it just smelled so, so good. You know, and if you couldn't afford something, she'd say, I'll put it away for you. John Parati and Woodson Clare say North Canaan was more than a center for retail. 
It was a pole star for youth, young men and women who grew up and came into their own in Northwest Connecticut. We used to hang out at the time in the six town uh, regional district, region one district. Uh, all of the action was in North Canaan, Johnny's restaurant. And that was the hangout. Kids drove up from Kent, uh, Salisbury, Sharon, everybody went to Johnny's restaurant. And that's where you could be found on a Friday, Saturday, or Sunday night. Everybody just hung out there. You know, they, they went in, get a burger for 25 cents or something. They had the machines at each booth where you put a dime or a nickel in the machine and you could, you know, select the latest songs that were being sung. And um, kids were out, gearheads were out front talking about their cars and whatnot. And that was pretty much what I remember doing back then. It's funny how it changed. Stay up all night in the park and talk to people. It was very carefree. For me, it was so much naivete, I guess. Kind of crazy innocence. That's it for today's installment of Voices from the Northwest Corner. Our episode was written by me, Abigail Adams, and edited by Housatonic Valley Regional High School history teacher, Pete Vermillier. Mixing, music, and sound design was by the musical artist, Gillicuddy. Special thanks to the Career Experience Program at Housatonic Valley Regional High School. To learn more about the Housatonic Heritage Oral History Center, visit their website, theoralhistorycenter.org. If you have your own historic stories to share about Region 1, you can contact us at theoralhistorycenter.org contact. And to hear more exciting stories about the Northwest Corner in the 1950s, you can check out the other exciting parts in our series. You can find all three of them at theoralhistorycenter.org. Funding for the podcast series is made possible by a grant from the Upper Housatonic Valley National Heritage Area. I'm Abigail Adams. Thanks for joining us.